If you have your Bible in some form um, in front of you, I'd like to look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter, this morning. And after reading the first section, which is, it's not too long, but it's 16 verses. This is speaking really of the church. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore I, this is Paul writing, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I can't stop here with every single word, and, um, but this comes to me. The word diligent here, um, other versions say endeavor. All of those English words are weak. Um, they're a bit weak from what the Greek... The Greek word here endeavor or be diligent to keep the, the peace, the bond of peace and the bond of love, so forth. The word diligent here means agonize. It's the Greek word agonizo from which we get agonize. If we agonized to keep the peace in every church, in every marriage, in every friendship, um, things would probably be different. Anyway, now... There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me just notice, note here the shift. You'll notice one through six, there is a theme of we're one, we're one, we're one. Then seven, but to every individual one of you. So here he's now looking at individuals. Each one of us is given grace or the gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is a parenthesis beginning in nine. Now this expression, he ascended, What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ." until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building 
up of itself in love. Now, as just a foundation of what I want to talk to you today, I want to, I just want to speak to you from my heart. Everybody know what that means? Whenever the preacher gets up and says, I just want to speak to you from my heart, it means he's sort of clueless about what he's supposed to do. <clears throat> or otherwise unprepared. I want to look at the whole concept of the church and try to make it appropriate to us even today. The word church is a simple word that just means called out, called out ones. There's much in that. The clear implication is that we are in a world which is not friendly to us and is in some kind of jeopardy headed for some kind of judgment or disaster of some kind. Now the scripture will lay those things out for us. But that we live in a world, as one of the great hymn writers Isaac Watts said, this world is no friend to grace to help us on to God. Don't look to this world for help in faith, love, ethics, living right. world's not going to help us with that. They are drawing us in a different direction. And so the word church clearly implies we're to, while living at the same address, in the same community, with the same zip code, and the same neighbors, we're to come out of it. He means then, not the location, but he means the value system, the definition of success or failure, what matters to the world. I will, on our days off, Liz and I will sit and drink coffee and we'll read the news on our phones or whatever, which is not probably good, but at any rate, then we try to encourage each other after we're suicidal after reading the news. But we'll say, you know, I will say, did you realize that, and then some name, I'm told, I don't have any idea who they are, but do you realize that so-and-so has a new boyfriend and they were seen holding hands on, as they walked and so we'll laugh about, no, I, or so-and-so broke up. You know, this couple broke up. Oh, how sad we are. I didn't realize it. I need grief counseling. That's the world we live in. The triviality knows no bounds in this world. The things that matter to this world don't matter to God at all. The things that matter to God don't matter to this world at all. So we're called out ones. That's what the word church means. 
Now, there are a couple of divisions that we have come up with, and I think it's biblical, but it's, it's man's organization of theology. There are a couple of divisions of the church. One, there's the church universal. Then there is the church, we could say, local. The local church is, this is the definition generally, it's a local organization of believers among whom the word of God is preached in its purity and the sacraments duly administered. That's a local body of believers organized together among whom the word of God is preached in its purity and the sacraments duly administered and celebrated. Now, so what's a church? Here's what we have to realize. Not every church is a church. There are plenty of churches that have the word church on its sign, on the letterheads, on the website. But if that definition, which comes from the Bible, the word of God is preached in its purity. In other words, we're guided by scripture. That's our source of authority. That, that is another phrase that we use is our, our guide our authority in faith and conduct. That means whatever we believe and how we live it. By that definition, a church that has a sign in the front using the word church that doesn't preach the purity of the word of God, I don't care what their sign says, that's not a church. Now, I'm not done yet. There may be some people in that church that's not a church who are members of the church because there's a second division. There's not only the local church, but there's the church universal. The church universal is every person, not, uh, and I'll refer to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, old man, what he requires. And that is to do right, do just or justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's what God defines a called out one as. So it means... Merely to have a membership record and be on the roll, that doesn't make you a Christian. To have had an, a past experience where you repented and you asked Christ into your heart and you knew you were forgiven, but to not maintain that walk, because clearly in that requirement list in Micah are those who are walking even John 
3.16 is so clear. Who is saved? Who has everlasting life? Who will not perish? He that is believing in the Son of God. Does not say believed. He who is believing. So the called out ones are those who have believed and are believing and are walking with God. And that group, which only God can see, is made up of the called ones around the whole world. That's a concept that I don't think too much about. I don't think that's good. And I think all of us need to think in more in terms of we're part of a worldwide body of believers everywhere in this world that there are people who love Jesus and live walking with him. That is my family member. That's my brother and sister. And God, of course, is the only one that can see that. But he sees it. He knows us. Therefore, what I said a minute ago, I can be a member of the church universal, but be seated in a pew of a church that may not be a, a church. I may have nowhere else to go. I can't, you know, I'm, I do the best I can. I'm stuck out in the middle of nowhere, and there, there's a little church that we're to gather with, which we need to do. The electronic church is not a good thing. It's, I'm grateful for technology, especially for those who can't get somewhere and gather, but from time immemorial, gathering together is God's plan. He said, don't, don't stop gathering together because you are a family. Now that family then, universal, that is everywhere, we're called to treat them and think of them as our family, brothers and sisters. I, someone told me, I've talked to so many people in the last few days, I can't remember who I talked to not even sure where I'm at this morning. Um, there, are, there are significant numbers of Christians in every single province in Afghanistan. They have to basically live underground. I mean, symbolically. They meet in secret often. If they create much of a profile... Who knows what will happen to them? And now, as that country has fallen, they're in immediate jeopardy. The call comes out then from organizations like Voice of the Martyrs and hundreds of other groups. Pray for them. How often do, and I'm not critiquing you, I don't think about that very often probably as much as I should. But even though I've not personally met them in Jesus, we're in the same family. We're not, in, as God looks at it, that's not an 
Afghan, an American, an African, Bolivian. It's the family of God. It's a total different layer that we're a part of. Now, there's another division that is used, at least theologically, in the church universal. The church universal is also divided into two groups. One is called, and you probably won't, you won't remember this by the time you get out to the parking lot. The church universal is divided into two parts. The church triumphant. The church triumphant are those who have made it safely to heaven. So those are the believers who have died in the faith and who, whose spirits are already entered into rest and whose bodies are still in the grave awaiting the general resurrection. The second division of the church universal is called the church militant. The church militant is us. We're the church militant. Now why use that military term? Because we're an army, God calls us that, and we're in hostile territory, we're behind enemy lines, we are in a battle constantly. The, the scripture couldn't be any plainer that we are in perpetual spiritual warfare and that we are to be soldiers we are to be armed both in defensive and offensive armament and our job is our our rest is not won yet theirs is there's an old hymn the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. And then it speaks of, in a strange phrase, speaks of mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. In other words, somehow there is a family link. I don't know the awareness in heaven that people have of us, but they are the ones who fought the battle. Isaac Watts again. Those who fought the fight and sailed through bloody seas. And then he asked the question in the hymn, must we be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? No. We're, we're not going to be ushered to heaven without fight. And in heaven is the great hosts of those who've gone before us. Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses that watch us run our race, a shift from the metaphor of military to a race. They've run the race and they finished it. We're still in the race. They are lining the race course, cheering us on. Some time ago, I was talking to a father whose 
I don't know, seven or eight-year-old daughter was in some little race at school. And he talked about the moms and dads that were at the finish line shouting encouragement and whatever to all these little kids staggering around um, trying to run their best a race and he drew the picture that we have a father he's at the finish and he's calling out to us don't quit keep going don't stop don't be looking around at everybody else. Don't turn around and see what's behind you. Come on. Come on. We're the church militant. We haven't made heaven our home yet. We are, and I never want to um, pull the rug out from underneath us or rob us of comfort and confidence but we're still in a fight where the weapons of the enemy can still be fatal to us. Once we enlisted in the army, it doesn't mean that we're always in the army. I have to, you can get dishonorably discharged. We haven't made heaven our home yet. And in many cases, it's through thorny paths that we go to make heaven our home. The church, then, militant and local, is what we, I think, understand the best. Just to go back, because this thought comes to me, something I may have missed, with the local church, I do not include, want you to hear me good, I do not include cults. Churches that do not believe Bible truth. But other than, with them accepted, there are church universal members Take Gillette. Everywhere. They're down at First Baptist. Few. One or two of the Catholics. Listen. Every place. There are people. We can't see. But God knows their hearts. They're walking in light that they have. They're, they are walking humbly with their God, which is what God's requirement is. And they, they're members of the same body we're in. We just don't see it. I think one of the reasons that we um, don't see it and don't think this way is satanic, and that is the myriad of divisions that have happened in the last 2,000 years so that we're all, we're all in our little bunker. And most of, what, most of what we do, 
and I don't want to get too far off here, but most of what we do is try to secretly lure somebody from that bunker to come over to my bunker. And then we think we've won a convert. While the devil still got enough sinners to choke the world. You understand? And so that's all we do. Or others have said, we just, as far as fishers of men, we just raid each other's aquariums. That's not what God wants us to do. Now, granted, he recognizes, and the Bible's full of it, talks about Paul writes to a number of people, and he says, greet the church in your house. Well, Paul's also written to the Philippians, and he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's writing to the Ephesians, and they are hundreds and hundreds of miles apart and don't know each other. Yet Paul talks to them about your brothers who are going through difficulty. The brothers in Asia, which is Turkey, he said, take up an offering for your brothers in Judea who are going through persecution. They're your brothers. God understands we're located in Gillette and we have a local body of believers, but we're part of something so much greater. Now, to bring it down to... Um, this is not an excuse for my love of church history. It's to try to get all of us to appreciate more history of our church, not this body, but the church of Jesus. We are one body, but notice what does it say? We have one faith. There's one authoritative doctrine one faith. We have, in a lot of Protestantism, we've thrown out much of anything that has to do with liturgy. And we don't like form. We don't like ritual. We think that we should only, you know, it's, it's impersonal kind of religion. Not, if you, not unless you make it that way. Not at all. The best way I can describe it is there's nothing wrong at all with form. There's just something wrong with formalism. When you trust in the ritual itself and you check the box, I took the Lord's Supper, I did this, I prayed so many prayers, I did that. That's wrong. But it's not the fault of the rituals. It's the fault of the hearts of the participants who have made it a rote, wooden, sterile, clinical kind of a worship. Having said that then, I will take the blame for over the years. I think we have kind of slipped. We used to frequently close, if not almost always, with the Lord's Prayer. We, more than we do now, would refer to the Apostles' Creed. Um, I want to reintroduce those things as going clear back. When, whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to do today, that in its earliest form was written in about 150 A.D. Now, to me, 
to people who may, you know, have no appreciation of history. And that's partly, I think, why we can slip away in today's day because history is, if it's beyond 15 minutes or whoever broke up with whoever in Hollywood, we don't care. History, ah. history, especially in the church, keeps us on track. Very briefly, I want to say this. There are, we believe, and down through history, there have been four ways to discern. And there's a hierarchy here, but four ways to discern truth and right and right behavior and so forth, how to live as a Christian. There are four different categories that we must check our ideas or a doctrine that's presented to us, some new idea. There are four ways to check it in this order. One, Scripture, obviously. What is our ultimate authority? Scripture. It's not me. It's not the church. It's not a vote we might take on a doctrine. It's what does the Bible say? Sola Scriptura. Only the Bible. So what does the Bible say? That's our first place we go. Now, in that Bible, are there things difficult to understand? Yeah. Are there verses of Scripture that just, you look at it and think, what in the world is that talking about? What do we do in interpreting that? Number two category. Scripture, tradition. What have 2,000 years of saints, scholars, giants intellectually and spiritually, what did they think that verse meant? What do they think that particular theology should be? It's, that's not unusual. Now, nobody practices it. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, but virtually nobody in the United States practices this. But what, what do we at least give lip service to when we have some question? Well, the founders, the Constitution... The declaration says this. That's not unusual. So we reflect on the founders. Now the apostles spoke in scripture. But since the apostles, there have been 2,000 years of saints, great preachers, theologians, many who were martyred for their faith. This is what they taught. This is what they believed. Third, we check reason. Reason. God is not nuts. Okay? God is not strange. He's God. God made us to think logically because he does. And so he made a creature in his image that without giving us reason and the capacity to think in the same way God thinks, he couldn't even communicate with us. He couldn't write us a book that we could figure out. He made then rational beings. We can think. 
So what does reason tell me? Well, among other things, the scripture can't be contradicted. So that if I read a verse over here and I say, well, that means such and such, you better be sure it doesn't contradict something five chapters over in another book. Okay? So in other words, I have to use my mind and think before I take a position and say, this is truth, I better check it over here. That's logic. I apply reason to it. It is just as important what a verse can't mean as what it does mean. Don't forget that. Well, I think it means this. Okay, but if you interpret it this way, you're, you get in trouble with what Jesus said over here. So it can't mean that. I don't know. Maybe, I may not know what it does mean, but I know what it can't mean. That's reason. Then fourth, personal experience. Meaning, here's an illustration. The Bible teaches that very clearly. Scripture. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Okay? Tradition, nobody's ever deviated from that. That was sticking to Scripture. Reason makes it perfectly clear. You abandon that which enrages God... He's no longer angry with you. He'll forgive you and restore you and bring you into his family. That's reason. Experience. It happened to me. I knelt by my bed and I confessed my sins and he forgave me. That corroborates all that goes before. Now, the reason I mentioned tradition is there is a mystic can't explain it, but there is a spiritual oneness that we have when we are part of a body of believers that did and said and lived and believed certain ways for 2,000 years. That's important. So this morning, there's two things I want us to do. <clears throat> I want us to, in a moment... Um, knowing that there might be one, two, maybe three total of us here who do not have the Apostles' Creed memorized. It'll be on the screen, okay? Um, Tanner, following that, will uh, close with the Lord's Prayer. Obviously, another prayer that's been around for a while. And I think it is proper and good for us to celebrate our oneness, not only currently, but oneness for 2,000 years with the people of God. So, if you will bring up on the screen, <clears throat> maybe dim the lights a bit. I don't know if they can, what this screen looks like, but I want us to recite together the uh, Apostles' Creed. And remember this, the Apostles' Creed is from the Bible. It is not the Bible. Therefore, there are you can tinker with it slightly down through history. And you might see, if you're used to the oldest form, it'll say Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Okay? 
because of the common understanding of what hell is, that it's not merely the abode of the dead, which is what it used to mean. It now means fire and punishment. Jesus didn't go there. So many people hundreds, centuries ago, either changed that to the abode of the dead or just took it out. If it's left in there as abode of the dead, it's redundant. He died, was buried, descended into death. That is making sense. There's reason. Okay. So you, if you wonder, that's why this is the version that we'll read. So follow me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall go to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Before we pray, before Tanner comes up, here's, here is something we are called to do as a church. And that is to bear with those who are suffering. We not only have those around the world who are suffering, but we have, even in our own congregation, suffering. Um, I do not know, I, I'm not factoring God out at all, but it does not look like uh, Jeff Dale will live. And... A decision by the family, at least, is, has to be made. Hope that God will take care of it in a way that they won't have to. But again, where there's breath, there's hope. So we don't factor God out. But that's what we're facing as a local body of believers with one of our members. So not only as we pray today... The Lord's Prayer, the part of that prayer that applies here, and we have to pray it, thy will be done on earth it is as it is in heaven. That's our prayer for Jeff, for Darcy, and for their family. So Tanner, if you'll come and lead us as we stand for prayer. The words for our prayer will be up on the screen again, so you're allowed to pray with your eyes open this time. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Thank you all for being with us. Keep, keep those who Dan talked about in your prayers as you go, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for coming, everyone.